This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, Deputy Editor at VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. So it is still Emmy season. We are still kind of uh, making our way through the best television of last year. Even as so much good television keeps showing up in this year, it's really a confusing time to be a TV watcher. Um, So we're going to start this week's show by talking about one of my favorite, very small uh, Emmys categories, but very fun, the guest actor categories for drama and comedy. And then we're going to have two interviews to share this week. Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent, talking to Judd Apatow. She went to his office and had a really wide-ranging conversation with him about everything from Roseanne to Trump. There was a lot going on. Uh, and then we're going to share Joanna's conversation with Haley Atwell, who is the star of Stars' Howard's End. But first... So I love the guest actor in a series categories because they bring in the most random people who would then win Emmys and you forget they won Emmys and they're giant movie stars and they forget they were on the show. Do you guys share my affection for this very small but fun category? Yeah, it's great because it's how like, you know, Laurie Metcalf wins an Emmy for, you know, something or or I think uh, Marco Martindale at one point. So it brings in fun people, though there is, I think, increasingly some like category fraud. Ooh. I'm looking at the Hollywood Reporter's like predictions for like who might be nominated and like calling Cameron Britton from Mindhunters or Matthew Good for the Crown guest actors. I know they're maybe credited as such, but like they're supporting roles in those respective seasons. You but know? like Matthew Good's in two episodes of The Crown, I think. Is it only two? I know. It feels like more. The rule is they have to have appeared in half or fewer than half of the season's episodes. Wow, just fewer than half. Wow. Yeah, and that rule came after Uzo Duba won for Orange is the New Black in 2015. Everyone's like, um, but <laughs> Crazy Eyes is like actually a character in the show. And that was the year, I don't know if you remember this, a scandalo involving Peter McNichol, but like Peter McNichol was nominated and um, for Veep. And he like, then they changed the rule and they had to bump him out of the category. And so Peter Scolari from Girls got nominated and then he won. So it was like a whole Peter McNichol, Peter Scolari Emmy scandal. <laughs> How did he pull off getting nominated when like the rules are clear? Like they just fudged it and thought no one would notice? Actually, possibly what happened is that he got nominated and he like just broke the rule or something like that and someone like interrogated it maybe someone from another show was like wait a minute i counted and peter mcnichol is in exactly one more than the rule requires or something like that that's a lot of uh tradecraft going on the battle of the peters is a famous scene from game of thrones so it was reflected there. Yeah, McNichol versus Scalaria, famous Supreme Court case. So, right, yeah. you know. So those are the rules we want to keep in mind if we want to like float anyone for any fantasy picks that isn't in some of the roundups yet. We got to got to keep that McNichol rule in line. Remember it. Well, looking at it even from last year, Alexis Bledel won in um for The Handmaid's Tale last year, which is crazy to me. I mean, I guess it's the same thing as Matthew Good where she was in fewer episodes than you realize even though she's such an essential part of the season. I think she's like 3 episodes. I think. Is she in more of them this season? Like, is she still going to be eligible there? Um, I am behind. 
behind on The Handmaid's Tale, but I think she's also still not like a featured player. So I think she, I mean, not a recurring. So I think she could be in that category. Yeah. Well, we're looking at um, a list that Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter did pulling together um, all the potentials because it's, I mean, honestly, for me to wrap my head around who might be eligible in these categories is so impossible. So all hail Scott Feinberg. He lists possibilities for The Handmaid's Tale as uh, Samira Wiley and Marissa Tomei, but doesn't have Alexis Padal. So she may, she might have moved up this year. I want to talk about that specific category because in Feinberg's sort of imagination or, or, or predictions, it's possible that Diana Rigg, Dame Diana Rigg, Cicely Tyson, Samir Wiley, Marissa Tomei, and Pam Greer could all be nominated in the same category, which is pretty spectacular. And if one of them doesn't get in, maybe it'll be Cherry Jones for The Handmaid's Tale, or Laverne Cox, or Elizabeth Perkins. Or like Margaret I mean, Martindale again. There's so many good options. This is why, that's why it's a fun category, because you're like, oh, right, they were like in, you know, however many episodes. So um, I like that category. Feinberg does have uh, Alexis Bledella in the supporting category as a frontrunner, but I want to challenge again, and maybe I'm just completely off the mark. But I really want to challenge this assumption that The Handmaid's Tale is going to be as much of a big deal this year at the, at the Emmys as it was. It's kind of being perceived as a front runner, but maybe just a, a you know conventional wisdom and not logic. I just know so many people who have fallen off watching the show. I, like so many people have told me that. And, uh, you know, I'm not just being defensive because I fell off watching the show. But I think there is just like this bleakness. I, but like, I, you know, no, it's I think a great right. show. And every performance is really good. So I'm like, I'm advocating for it. I wouldn't be like upset if people got nominated. I just I don't know if this is like a, oh, this is the big thing last year. So it'll be the big thing this year. The same is true of SNL. And they were both like the big thing because they were both like in the hot fever of of like anti-Trumpism and stuff like that. You know what I mean? They were the perfect sh- both comedy and drama for that um, time. And I feel like now, I mean, maybe maybe with like recent news, we're, we're back up in like, you know, stirred up again. But I think like the fatigue is set in to a certain extent. So I don't know. It might be then escapism like Game of Thrones is back on the table. I have seen like not just sort of anecdotally, but like from like professional watchers of things. Like there was a piece in The Guardian last week about you know, how season two of Handmaid's Tale has just devolved into miserabilism and actually isn't serving any purpose. Um, I think a couple other critics I saw were so, so even though last, just last week, I was like, Elizabeth Moss is definitely going to win. I, I may be more and more inching towards your side of things, Joanna, just in terms of like, just because I'm now paying better attention about who's talking about the show and how they're talking about it. A uh, question for you guys, then, and not just because you're very deep in Westworld at this point with the Still Watching Westworld podcast, does that leave room for something like Westworld, maybe even more so than Game of Thrones, because it's on right now and, and front in people's minds? I mean, if voters are watching it, yeah, because, I mean, you know, people can go and listen to Still Watching Westworld and um, hear our more elaborated thoughts on this. But um, there has been at least one spectacularly good episode uh, this season that's kind of a bottle standalone episode in its own way. So if maybe if they submitted that on these like long, you know, long lists of possibilities, um, Scott Feinberg has Rinka Kukuchi suggested as a possibility for guest actress. She is amazing. Yeah. She's in one episode, not the episode I'm referring to, but she is in another great episode from the season and probably will not be back. And so I don't know. I think that the show seems to have captured some sort of zeitgeist. I don't know. Joanna, what, what does it seem like to you? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, since we were, you know, our intention today was to come in and, focus on the guest categories. I was 
astonished that Feinberg had, he has some great, he has got like Jimmy Simpson, who I think is great and, and had the challenge this, this season on Westworld of doing like more of an Ed Harris impression than he ever did before. Um, and I thought he did a good job. He had Peter Mullen, who is also extraordinarily great, uh, this season. I think he's both, Delos, right? Yeah. He plays Jim Delos and he has also like a, a, an episode that focuses almost entirely on him. I think he's extraordinary, but like my mind was blown. I just think that Feinberg might be a little behind on Westworld that he didn't have Zon McLaren, who is the, star of uh, Kiksuya the episode 8 which is I think just the shining jewel in anything that Westworld's ever created it's the ghost He's, station episode for the ghost yes yeah, yeah. sorry I'll just I'll stop just throwing these terms around <laughs> don't know um, but yeah the, the ghost nation episode Don McLaren carries that entire episode almost silently on his back and uh, it's like a little movie and he's beautiful in it. It's one of it's some of the best television I've seen all year. Definitely. And that's who I would, that's who I would advocate for. And I have to say that the guest actor category, like the way those go, they sometimes tend to reward the things that I do really care about. Like when Jeremy Davies got an Emmy for justified and I was like, yes, like pay attention to Jeremy Davies. Thank Someone's you. Someone's been reading my letters. Yeah, exactly. I'm hopeful that Don McLaren gets in there for for Westworld but you know as for the other categories I will just say and you know and Anthony Hopkins I mean sorry spoiler alert if you're behind on Westworld but Anthony Hopkins isn't it this season I believe he's in less than half the episodes and so like um he didn't get nominated last year I think and I was uh I was really surprised and a lot of people didn't get nominated or uh certainly didn't win in a way that I thought they would for Westworld in the first season and I think um I don't know I I can't tell if it's like more or less popular than it was in the first season with Emmy voters, but uh, Zon McLaren did. I mean, that's that's who I would give this category to if I could. Yeah, that's where I'm preparing to have my heart broken uh, and my my other personal FYC that I'm just worried isn't going to ha- happen. And I feel like I've talked about this forever, but there's an episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine, which happily is coming back for another season, where it's a, it's also kind of a bottle episode that takes place mostly in an interrogation room, and Sterling K. Brown comes in as this dentist who is suspected of killing his business partner, and it is so incredible. He is so funny and also such a great dramatic actor. Um, and they love Sterling K. Brown. Like it just, but I feel like there's not enough attention on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and it's always like SNL hosts who get these nominations. And apparently, there was a whole season of Curb Your Enthusiasm that's eligible that I forgot about. Yeah, totally, um, totally <laughs> forgot that that happened. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, so anyway, if any if there are any Emmy voters li- listening, please watch Sterling K. Brown's episode of Brooklyn Nine Nine. It's so good, and I hope he gets in there, even though he's inevitably going to get nominated for This Is Us too. So he'll be fine no matter what. One show. I'm curious about that is listed on Feinberg's, you know, like distant possibilities in a couple different categories uh, is um, 13 Reasons, uh, which is the Netflix teen show that has kind of been shrouded in controversy because of its depiction of suicide and various other um, things happening to teenagers, um, but has also been like hugely embraced by young audiences uh, and probably was the big was one of the biggest shows of the past TV year. Um, in terms of like the like the cultural moment or whatever, but so I'll be curious to see if that registers in term for Emmy voters. Um, you know, it's 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 a Netflix show which has not deterred Emmy voters in the past, but it's about teenagers, which you know you'd have to go pretty far back to find a show like maybe My So Called Life or something that 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 resonated with Emmy voters that was about like a younger demographic. I guess Glee. Yeah, I'm suspicious that Feinberg. And once again, like I don't know how he crafts his list. I just know that like sometimes when I'm trying to narrow down an entire sea of actors, I would look at like what 
was what hit at previous award shows. And I'm suspicious that like maybe 13 Reasons Why isn't on here because Catherine Langford got that surprise Golden Globe nomination for it. Um, mm-hmm. And and so he's like, oh, 13 Reasons Why is on is on the voting sort of radar. But like Catherine Langford's Golden Globe nominations, I feel like is one of those, you know, like um, young new face Golden Globe nominations that won't necessarily translate to other awards bodies but i could be wrong i mean she's good in the show so yeah the emmys are all are famously kind of fond of things that they already know uh more so than the golden globes for sure the one place in which i will like absolutely agree with feinberg is that he's got a lot of snl hosts uh sort of rolling around in the in this in the comedy categories um and at the very top of his top list is donald glover for snl and i think I think that that feels likely to me, not just because the Emmys have shown that they like Donald Glover, but because when he hosted that episode, um, you know, and then released a new music video and then was in Solo. And even though Solo didn't su- do super well, like got positive, it was just like Donald Glover, like owned those two weeks, I want to say. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame or be surprised if the Emmys gave him a, an award for that uh, performance, which is really cool. kind of in the way that they gave Melissa McCarthy an Emmy for uh, Mike and Molly when really they were giving the it to that, her like, bridesmaids for bridesmaids. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you know, and, and Donald Glover like has a television show. That's great. You know, so like he'll, he can win for that too. But, um, but yeah, I think you're right, Joanna, that that SNL moment was so, like so dominant for for a little while that that yeah he'll he's for sure getting nominated but i and i think he'll win so richard is there are there anything in the guest acting categories that you feel particularly pulled for that you want to uh, fyc your way into a nomination for them um i want to say again dame diana riggs cicely tyson marissa tomei and pam greer <laughs> all of them i i haven't watched i've only watched one of them and i mean in their respective roles but uh i'm into that um i think rika kikuchi would be great um and uh you know, I, I I support your Sterling K. Brown thing, even though I haven't seen it. Um, listed here in a couple different ways is is Homeland, a show that a lot of people have given up on. I think um, to their detriment because the show has gotten so good in the sort of post Brody, post Damian Lewis years. Um, and Jake Weber, uh, who plays in the most recent season, played this kind of like Alex Jones, Infowars type, um, you know, sort of agitator, uh, was great. I mean, it's a big, big, big performance, but like it kind of works. And then F. Murray Abraham, who's been on the, se- the show for several seasons now, I guess still qualifies as a guest actor. He's terrific as this very slippery sort of s- s- disgraced CIA operative. Um, and that's a show that like, you know, um, could 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 use a, a nomination here it probably won't get in the bigger categories but like certainly could here in in, in, the, in the guest actor ones and and it, it well deserved i think richard mentioned cameron Britton and mindhunters seeming like too much of a part of that show to um too much of a part of that show to be uh, in the guest actor category but I, th- I do think he's only in two if maybe three episodes um and he's so stunning. It's one of those, it's his performance is like, it's like if you're watching Silence of the Lambs without Anthony Hopkins in it, like with all due respect to Jodie Foster, and you're like, okay, this is fine. And then like, um, <laughs> then Anthony Hopkins shows up and you're like, oh, I see what we're doing here. And I think that was a lot of people's experience with Mindhunter is they were like, what is this Jonathan? Gro- I don't, I don't understand. I like Jonathan Groff, but I don't understand what's going on. And then uh, Cameron Britton shows up and you're like, oh my God. God, and he's extraordinary uh, in in that role. And um, I 
for some reason, I don't know why. Once again, this is just my like anecdotal zeitgeist, whatever. I feel like a lot of people are watching Mindhunter now. I don't know why it's having a little kick up uh, resurgence in popularity, but I've heard a lot of people talking about it recently. So um, I, I wonder, I, I, I would put him and Zon McLaren in as, as my front runners in that category, guest actor in a drama. Joanna, can you explain to me why Mindhunter sent me size 16 high heels? I know it was not just me. This is like... Do you want me to tell you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I I want to watch Mindhunter, but the fact that they sent me shoes that were like never going to fit and I don't know what to do with them was very confusing to me. And th- this happened to a lot of people. This is like there for your consideration mega campaign. It's a big, it's a big part of the show. It's a fetishistic serial killer thing. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel very judged. Enjoy it. Feel disturbed. <laughs> That's what they want you to feel. Um, yeah, and, and, uh, you know, Dame Diana Rigg feels like a good, a good call because, you know, she's not coming back again. This is it for her. So, you know, why not? For the comedy, like, Jane Lynch and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is, is a front runner, uh, in the guest actress in a comedy series. And she's, she's good. She's really good. Obviously, Jane Lynch is great. I don't know if I have anyone else to put forward. To challenge her, what do you guys think? I mean, Tiffany Haddish hosting SNL. She's kind of in a Melissa McCarthy spot where she has just been everywhere and seems like someone they would want to give an award to. Maybe, yeah. We're an awards podcast and we have not talked about the MTV Movie and TV Awards, guys. I mean, this is like <laughs> who, with, that Tiffany Haddish just hosted. Actually, I think pretty it's well. It's her moment. Yeah, she's great. And, and uh, Was there anything actually at the... Did either of you watch that award show? No. I'm usually so weak for an award show, but that one I sat out. I think the only notable moment was Chadwick Boseman when he won something for Black Panther, gave the, his trophy to the guy from the Waffle House who had like tackled yeah. the shooter or something like that. That was like a weird, like the real world intruding on this bizarre award show. That would never happen at the Oscars. No, didn't um, Love Simon won Best Kiss? I believe that's right. Yeah, and and Keenan Lonsdale is, uh, accepted it while wearing this amazing. I don't know what it what it could be called, but sort of Cleopatra costume or something. He looked great. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. I think it was just like Black Panther. Black Panther won everything. Chris Pratt won a Lifetime Achievement Award, which makes us all feel elderly. And he got like quite religious at the podium. And the and like, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what I am saying is that uh, it's not a uh, standard. And so um, that was something I think people sat up and took notice of. Yeah. And I mean, standardly, if you're going to thank God, you thank Kevin Huvane. Like that's that that's yes. uh, that's the Hollywoodies. For- Used to be Harvey Weinstein, yeah. now it's Kevin Huvane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Tiffany Haddish uh, is is a is a good thought, but I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what else. To, what else to stump for here? Did uh, is there anyone in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that you guys think should should be in this category? Because like, apparently Amy Sedaris, Busy Phillips, um, had popped up. Um, oh, I mean, I'm just looking at, at other long shots listed here. Um, RuPaul for Broad City, that could be fun. I like a RuPaul nomination. And then a crazy one that Feinberg has here, I don't know why, is John Stamos for Fuller House. <laughs> I would sort of delight in as a, as a troll delights in Are you still people. watching Fuller House? You, you were the person who jumped on board when it first started. Did you, have you kept up? Katie, I've seen every episode. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's a vile, vile show, but I still watch it. We're behind on Handmaid's Tale, but we're up to date on Fuller House. Well, it is funny because Stamos shows up like maybe a couple times in any respective season, you know, and he gets the big applause and whatever. But he is among, you know, these people who've been doing this, you know, on and off now for 30 years. Uh, He is 
the pro, you know, like he has this kind of smooth, like he's, he's, he's demonstrably like, you're like, I get why he's more famous than everyone else in this, you know, on this set, you know? Um, so he does make an impression when he shows up on the show. So I guess maybe that's why he's listed here. But like, I mean, that show, will, I, I hope to God that that will never get nominated for anything. It does not deserve it, but. <laughs> It'll be on forever, no matter what. I mean, so. Jody Sweeten's also kind of weirdly good on the show, too. I'm just going to say. but The show has, uh, or Feinberg has um, Elizabeth Perkins in Glow as an option. And I just want to use this as an occasion to, in advance, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I know advertise the fact that Richard and I are going to do a, a podcast about Sharp Objects on HBO. And I haven't... Nice I haven't, self-plug. Thanks. I haven't started it yet, but I am reading the book. And the character that Elizabeth Perkins playing is my favorite part of the book. And I'm really excited to <laughs> see what she does like all the scenery she's about to chew on the hbo series sharp objects i'm 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 team always elizabeth perkins weeds great everything she's done great so now we're going to share the interview that rebecca keegan did with judd apatow she went and met him in his office which was kind of a good jumping off point for them talking about his work in writers rooms uh it's a really wide-ranging conversation they were there to talk about the documentary that judd directed called the zen diaries of gary shandling who was a comedian who really had a huge impact on judd apatow he interviewed him for a radio show when he was 15 which is a cool start to their relationship and it'll be in the best documentary or nonfiction special category at the Emmys. so there's a, a there's a timely peg for it but they talk about his work with Roseanne. They talk about kind of the state of Hollywood right now. And there's a there's a lot to it. Judd Apatow obviously is involved in almost every aspect of the uh, movie and TV industry. So let's take a listen. It's a pretty good room. Some rooms have good mojo for yeah. writing jokes. And uh, some, the second you walk in, the fluorescent lights are on and you want to kill yourself. And you're just like, I cannot be in this room for the next year. Yeah. But this is a good one. There's a good energy to it. Think about a lot about how you establish a vibe in a writer's room and make it a place where there's sort of freedom of expression, but also it's sort of a cozy place for people. I mean, that's something you've spent a lot of your career doing. Is there a secret to setting the right mood? Well, you spend many months, sometimes years, picking the people that should be in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing because sometimes you pick someone that is an asshole. And then every day, (laughs) everyone wishes they weren't in that room because that person is in the room. We call that a room killer. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of it is just who you hire and having some sense of chemistry and style. Yeah. And it's like an 11-person marriage you're trying to figure out. Yeah, there must be a real trick to sort of partnering people up and figuring out who will work well together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, And you get it wrong all the time. Yeah. You meet someone, they seem so funny. They get in the room. There are some people in a room who will just criticize. I talk about all this in my master class, by the way. <laughs> That's right. You did a master class recently. I did a master class. And I talk a lot about things like this. Yeah. Like one of my big pieces of advice generally is, you know, don't be an asshole. Mm-hmm. You, you want to be the kind of person that people want around that they – think, oh, that's a problem solver. They get things done. And it's funny how many people are not in tune to how they come off. Right. So that's uh, an important part of it. But, you know, I've seen every version of it, the great room, the nightmare room. I've I've been in them all. I bet. One person who shaped you in many Mm -hmm. ways and was a mentor to you was Gary Shandling, who Uh you made this documentary about for HBO, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. What was it that made you think not only was this someone who you really loved and learned from, but that he was someone who should have a movie made about him? I started editing together some short reels of jokes and mini documentaries for his memorial service. And while I was going through the material 
and also putting a booklet together to give out at the memorial. I, I started to, you know, reading sections of his journals to put some pages in the the book for the memorial. And it was clear there was an incredible story there and that most people, even the ones who knew Gary pretty well, didn't actually know his story and mm-hmm. didn't know him as well as they thought. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those people that maybe more than anyone I've known, you'd bump into someone and they would go, what's happening with Gary? What's up with Gary? How's he doing? And even Gary would say to me, when people talk about me, what do they say? Hmm. How, do they, how do they think I'm doing? How do you think I'm doing? Mm-hmm. And that was what most people's relationship was with Gary. He was a fascinating, kind person who was also very sensitive. And we were all trying to figure out what his mental state was right. a fair amount of the time because we, we cared about him so much. And he seemed to be on edge in different ways during different periods. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he seems you know, like he's working hard on the show. And, and so that's a certain vibe. And then there's another period where he's trying not to work. And he's trying to figure out who, who am I if I am not a comedian? Who am mm. I if I'm not this guy? Mm-hmm. And then other times he's, you know, he's in court and he's in this big battle and you feel his uh, fragility and his strength in dealing with this massive lawsuit against his his manager. And it was always, he was always someone you worried about right. as a friend uh, and leaned on. It's an interesting type of person. You worried about him, but he was also the person you leaned on when you had problems. You first met him when you interviewed him for your high school uh, radio station, which there's a little bit of audio of that in the documentary. And I have to say, you sound like a very confident 16-year-old. Like, you sound totally comfortable interviewing this famous comedian. Well, not super famous at that point, but still, you know, a comedian. Were you? Yes. What were you like as a 16-year-old? There's a good question. Who knows? In memory, <laughs> we make it all up, right? After uh, 35 years... I'm just making up what I'd like the answer to that to be. But I was obsessed with comedy. My parents were going through a terrible divorce that lasted a really long time, like years and years Mm -hmm. of warfare. Mm -hmm. And I think it made me feel like I got to get my act together. I need a, a goal professionally and... My grandfather was a record producer who produced people like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Sarah Vaughn. And he was one of the people who, in a way, created the jazz and blues industry in the late 40s and the Hmm. early 50s. And he was a hustler. And I think there was a part of me that thought, oh, you have to create your future. You don't wait for someone to give you a job. You build something. Mm -hmm. And I loved comedy. And at a very early age, I thought, I got to meet. I got to meet these people. Right. And then I need to ask them how it's done because before podcasts and the internet, I, you, you wouldn't read an interview with Jay Leno. It didn't exist. Hmm. Like if you wanted to hear him explain his career and how he did everything, maybe there'd be a newspaper article or a short magazine article, but there was no long form way to learn about these people. So I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'll just do it. And then I'm pretending to be confident. I'm so right. excited during every interview. I'm out of my mind. Can't believe I'm talking to John Candy or Howard Stern or right. whoever. But I'm also trying to present myself as a peer. Yeah. Even though that makes no sense and I'm 15 or 16 right. years old, in my head, I'm like, I got to seem cool. So they'll <laughs> maybe want to be my real friend in life. Right. Did that ever happen? No. No. <laughs> Nobody did. But certain people were very kind to me. Alan Zweibel, the great Saturday Night Live writer and screenwriter, he took out his uh, his 
address book and gave me everyone's phone number. Oh my gosh. So that was one way I met a lot of people is yeah. he said, Oh, you want to talk to James Downey? Do you want to talk to Marilyn Suzanne Miller? And, and suddenly I was uh, meeting a whole other group of people. When you were looking for people to interview for this, was there anybody who you thought, if I could get that person, that would really make me happy? The one that was uh, most important you know, was uh, his cousin, Mike, mm-hmm. who who was the one person who could talk about his childhood, who was there. I mean, everybody was very important. I thought that Jim Carrey had a very close relationship with Gary, but is also fascinated with a lot of the same spiritual issues as Gary. Mm-hmm. Who am I? What's the purpose of this life? And then they both succeeded as much as anyone can succeed. And they've been as creative as you can be. And they were interested in what that meant and what are you supposed to do after that happens? Right. Uh, and who are you at your core if you could drop the persona of how people see you as a star, as a comedian, or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. They talked a lot in Gary's final uh, year, so he had a lot of insight about what that type of mindset is. Is that a subject that interests you also? I'm interested in it, but I think... In a more half-assed way. You know, I'll, I'll meditate, but maybe three times a month. Right. But, but I am interested in all of that and, and talk to Gary a lot about it. But I don't feel as uh, tortured about it mm-hmm. as he seemed to be sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, I think the reason why he made the Larry Sanders show was because he was irritated by his own ego. Right. And he was making fun of people who were obsessed with being on television. But he was obsessed with being on television. And I think he understood that. He was also satirizing himself. But a lot of times he thought, well, I'm an artist. I'm creating this story about the human condition. But he also wanted people to love it and wanted to be recognized for it. So I look at it now like he had a part of himself he wasn't that happy with. And he made fun of it on television. Mm -hmm. Here's the worst part of me. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that so a lot of people share, and I will mock it on this show. Right. I was just checking your Twitter feed before mm-hmm. you came, and yes. you're very sort of politically active on your Twitter what, feed. What am I ranting about now? Um, I think immigration was the topic today. Children being ripped away from their yeah. their families. Yeah. It's uh, it's heavy stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a nightmare, and the lack of uh, uproar is very, very sad. I, 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 I don't know what to do except – Continue to hold as many benefits for the ACLU as I can. I've noticed that when you tweet about it, you're not joking. And so you'll often be jokey on Twitter mm-hmm. and you, yes. you know, will mine other aspects of your life for humor. And this is one where you seem to not do that. Is that a conscious choice or why is that? Here and there, I, I, I try to be funny about things. Every once in a while I remember, oh, why would anyone want to look at this if there wasn't something <laughs> other than me being as upset as they are? And certainly you're, you feel like you're preaching to the converted. But maybe the converted need to wake up and do something. I mean, still, you know, in California, we had a primary last week. Almost nobody voted. Right, right. So people aren't as active as they should be with the very precarious, dangerous situation we're in. And it doesn't feel that funny to me. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly bummed out that we're in this reality right now you would love to have a president who doesn't think it's my job to tear kids away from their families in order to terrify people in mexico and other countries so they don't dare try to cross our border it's literally like torturing people to scare other people right and i I try to do everything i can that's positive but then i also rant right well 
I think a lot of people share your feelings and appreciate that. I know I noticed you tweeted in early May that Roseanne had blocked you. Yes, I didn't and know you, when and, that happened. And back in in the <laughs> early nineties, you wrote for Roseanne, yes. and you guys had a pretty warm professional relationship. We still do. Yeah, we still do. She may not have just wanted to uh, get retweeted many things she disagrees with. I don't know. What was it like writing for her? In the early 90s. Well, it was fantastic. She was the biggest star in the country uh, for the most part. Uh, and she had a gigantic platform. She had done one stand-up special, which was her original act. And I wrote with her for about a year on her next act. And it was all about her new life. So she had this stand-up set she used to do, which is about being poor. And we wrote the one about here's what life is like now that I'm successful. Mm -hmm. And I would go to her house on the weekends and write jokes at her kitchen table. I remember doing a very long interview with her because I told her, I go, I don't know anything about you. And I forced her to sit with me for hours and hours. Hmm. And I just asked her all about her life. And then she shot at an HBO special in a Gold LeMay Elvis kind of biker outfit. <laughs> and it was great. It was a, a great experience. I also wrote for Tom. I wrote three specials for Tom. Tom Arnold. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they were my earliest supporters. So what was it like for you watching things unfold with her when her tweet led to her show being canceled on ABC? Uh, you know, I think that uh, there's always so much energy around people when they're in moments of personal destruction. Mm -hmm. And some people seem thrilled or titillated or excited and other people, uh, you know, try to find a reason to support her. I, as an old friend, felt very sad for her because she has very real mental health issues and she's talked about them for decades. I interviewed her for my book, Sick in the Head. We talked about it at length, and I think you have a person who's in a moment of uh, success, and maybe that's uncomfortable for her. Mm -hmm. And whatever urges she has to be rebellious have overtaken her in some way. And I haven't spoken to her recently to know, you know, where her head's at generally, but I, I see it more as someone who's uh, crying out for help than someone who's a hateful person mm -hmm. you know she always had a lot of energy and was very angry and early on really fought for women was uh, as uh, that's how she started she started performing in feminist bookstores mm -hmm. and places like that so for the most part I, I hope she's okay and i feel bad for people who got hurt in that mm -hmm. uh, everyone who worked with her you know it's tragic people work hard there are actors and actresses on that show that that's going to be the best job they ever could have right they're not going to get a job like that right i mean crew people it is a, a drag and it really hurts people's lives but we're all circus people and so the people who work on that show will move to another show mm -hmm. but it temporarily it you know if you're a writer and you don't have a good deal that gets you paid anyway when the show goes down well you just lost half a year of work and maybe you'll get another job quick but maybe you won't mm -hmm. it's very sad for for those people do you think abc should have canceled it i don't i don't know i, I don't know if i've ever thought about it i may be too close to roseanne to have a place in me that's like you gotta take her show away mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh i totally understand it and it makes perfect sense and i don't think she's had a response to why she did it that is logical enough to say 
maybe you should still have the show. Right. I, right. I think that she continues to change the reason why she did it. Right. Which I also see as a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of pressure running a show. And when I interviewed Roseanne for my book, she talked about being someone who had been poor and was never a leader of people who also had mental health issues and and how that created a setup for a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I think there's probably in some ways the same thing happened. She's not really built to be on top of that pyramid right. in charge of a lot of people responsible for them because she has her own struggles. Mm-hmm. I've never heard her say anything that was racist in decades. Mm. So I don't know where that comes from. It's as mysterious to me as anybody else. Uh, but there's a lot of people getting pulled into these worlds of conspiracies mm-hmm. and I, I really don't understand it because all she was was a proponent of women. And certainly Donald Trump is not a proponent of women. Right. And she's a proponent of children. So maybe it's just me caring about her as a person. But the only way I can process it is in some way Roseanne has, uh, you know, has is in some sort of altered state of her mind. Mm, mm-hmm. And I just hope that she, you know, finds her way back to the values that were really important to her when I first met her. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's been like seven or eight years since Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. And when that movie came out, a lot of people, including me, wrote pieces that were like, it's a new era for women yeah. in comedy and movies. Um, do you think that that panned out? I think it might have panned out in the sense that there's a lot of content from women, mm-hmm. but they may not be movies. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it's related to Bridesmaids because there are a lot of people doing amazing work. Tina Fey broke down tons of doors and Amy Poehler and Bridesmaids was a part of a a wave of uh, women like Lena Dunham being empowered to run their own shows and have their own visions uh, the way they should. And so now in 2018, you look at TV and there's a lot, way more female showrunners and creators and amazing stars, but it hasn't changed that much in movies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's hard to make a good movie. So just because there's a really good movie with a group of women and for some reason, like, you know, the stars align and it it comes out great. It's really hard to (laughs) to do it. Uh, It's a miracle when it happens. And... I think that overall comedy isn't uh, firing at all cylinders because I think a lot of the talent has decided to work in television. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You rarely see like uh, an article about a, a big comedy spec script sale. It used to be someone just sold Liar Liar for millions of dollars right. or there would be people selling these big high concept fun comedies. You never hear about it before. I think those comedians have really migrated to television and they create shows instead of write screenplays. And so that's hurt comedy in film. Do you think that will come back? I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it's... Uh, is that because studios don't have the appetite for it or what is... Why is that? Is it I just think, that so much more opportunity in TV? I think the studios uh, don't seem to be spending as much on development of scripts. They really want you to bring a script mm-hmm. and a director and a actor or actress and bring a package to them. They're not buying a ton of stuff and working on the development at the studio as they used to. I'm, I'm sure they are. I think it was a little more robust back in the day because that's all we used to talk about was our next screenplays. Right. And now all those people are just, you know, creating a, a show for Amazon or Hulu or something like that. 
Which is at least theoretically a lot more work, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot more scripts, more hours. Yeah, I guess it's just better to have that lifestyle for a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. hard to sit home alone, write a script, hope they make it. Right. Usually they don't. Right. And if someone says, hey, you want to make 10 episodes of your vision and it will air, right. it's a better bet for most young comedy writers. Right. And they like hanging out with other comedians and they like being in the zeitgeist. So it's very alluring. Right, right. How often do you do stand-up now? Uh, I get out once or twice uh, a week. Sometimes once. Sometimes once, and I just try to get up a lot mm-hmm. that night. Do you think to write for someone, which you did for Gary, you have to have a sort of particular kind of understanding of them as a person or, or things in common with them as a person? I do think you have to have things in common, and, and, and some of it is just your spirit. It might even be your wounds. I always felt that on some unconscious level, Gary knew that I understood what he was feeling and that I had had enough happen in my life that I had similar types of wounds or relationships with parents that you know tuned us in to each other. Mm-hmm. So if I pitched a joke to Gary, he may not always like it, but I was always in the universe because I had a similar sensibility to him. Sometimes a great writer would be around and pitch a joke that was just so wrong for Gary. It might be a great joke, but just so wrong. Right. And Gary would just seem so upset and, and mad because it, he didn't feel understood. Right. And he also didn't feel like he was in good hands. Like, oh, you don't get this whole thing that is me. Right, right. And it, that was hard to watch sometimes because uh, uh, that's a painful part of writing on a show. Is, mm-hmm. you know, certain people really excel and certain people do not excel. Mm-hmm. And it's painful for them mm-hmm. uh, on staff of TV shows, especially with a, a star who is also the head writer responsible for the whole show. Right, right. You've sort of mined different aspects of your life in your own work, adolescence, being a young married person, being an older married person. You just turned 50 a few months ago. Is there a this is 50 or an exploration of what's going on in your life now that's kicking around in your head? Well, luckily, not a lot is going on right now, which is bad for a movie concept, but good for life. Right. But that is something that... I am interested in if if the right idea occurs to me. I mean, people really seem to have responded to This is 40. It's aged well, mm-hmm. and people relate to it. So I feel like it would be fun to see everybody again. And my kids are so hilarious, and Leslie's so funny that there's certainly something interesting to do there, if I think of it. Mm-hmm. You never <laughs> As- know. Sometimes it doesn't come. As your daughters have gotten older, have they still been comfortable with sort of being involved in your comedy and being part of your stories that you tell? Well, uh, they haven't, you know, done a movie with me in a little while. I was working with Iris on Love. Mm -hmm. She plays Aria on Love and is really funny. And and Mud is just uh, shot a a pilot for HBO called Euphoria. So we're hoping to keep them gainfully employed, but it hasn't been with me. You know, I talk about them a bunch in my my stand up, mm-hmm. and they seem uh, anywhere from mildly mildly amused to completely disinterested. <laughs> <laughs> Did they get veto power over jokes in your stand up? Well, I said to them, "Do you want to watch my stand up special before I lock it? Yeah, because if there's anything that makes you uncomfortable, I'll remove it." And both of them said, "Whatever," <laughs> and they didn't watch it. And only one of them actually ever watched it. Maud still hasn't watched it. They've seen all the jokes, uh, you know, in in, in clubs, but. But they have a, a healthy 
lack of interest. Do you think it strikes me that in some way being 50, you sort of straddle these different generations of yeah. comics. Like on the one hand, you have the Gary Shandlings of the world mm-hmm. who show, had played such a key role in shaping you. And then you've yourself provided a platform for young writers like Lena Dunham or yeah. Kumail Nanjiani and, and Emily Gordon. Do you ever feel like you're sort of bilingual in a way that you speak to these two different generations who oftentimes don't speak to each other? Uh, I've never thought about any of this. This is a very good question. I need to... Well, one fun thing is introducing those people. I remember I took Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor out to lunch with Mike Nichols. Hmm. So that was a, a fun, magical thing to yeah. get a chance to do. And me and Bill Hader went and visited Mel Brooks uh, four or five months ago. And at the end of it, Mel Brooks goes, come and visit me again, but not soon. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always felt like Older people, comedians, writers, directors, they have so much to tell you. And uh, and a lot of them are very open to teaching you and giving you wisdom. So that relationship has been something that, that's always been very precious to me, not just with Gary, but, but you know, meeting other people. I think I have that. I'm the old guy in some of those relationships mm-hmm. uh, with people. And I think as a result of Gary being so kind to me, I've always felt like, well, I guess that's what this is. This is the essence of what we do. Mm-hmm. We try to learn. Hopefully someone hel- helps us out, teaches us something. And then when we think we know some stuff, we start telling younger people and collaborating. And it's, uh, you know, it's been probably the best part of my career is, you know, working with people like Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor and, and, and Pete Holmes and Paul Rust and Leslie Arfin. And it's, you know, it's such a satisfying relationship because you, you know you're being really helpful, but they're they're so excited about what they're doing and they're really inspired, and that gets me going. So uh, I I love those types of creative relationships. Was it a weird moment when you realized you were going from, in some sense, being the young guy asking for advice to being the older guy dispensing advice? You know, I got a gray nose hair, and I'm like, here we are, here we are. <laughs> I didn't mind any of the other gray in my hair, but when when the nostrils go gray, you're like. That's the sign. I'm like my freaking eighth grade English teacher, Mr. Mendelssohn. I knew it would happen. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Now we're going to listen to an interview that I did with Haley Atwell, a star of Howard's End. People might know her from her work in the Marvel movies as Agent Peggy Carter. Haley talked a bit about that. She talked a bit about some of her favorite award shows and then just some of the work that she did on the show that had less to do with acting and more to do with leading her cast and crew. And so this is the great Haley Atwell. We are joined today by Howard's End star Haley Atwell. Haley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I want to say, so we had a chance to chit chat a little bit before Howard's End premiered here in the Mm. States. And having, when I talked to you then, and maybe I made this up, but it seemed like you were anticipating a possible 
pushback on the way this story, particular story, ends, specifically as it pertains to feminism and what we usually think of as a feminist story and the ways in which Howard's end and the decision your character makes sort of defies that. Mm, mm. And were, were you worried about that? Did I make that up? And if you were worried, what did you think of how audiences actually reacted to the show? I, I was curious, because I think it's a good part of the conversation, because by the end, are we okay to spoil it? I think, think so. Can I say? Yeah. Um, so by the end, she chooses to stay with Mr. Wilcox. And I, and as opposed to running off just with her sister Helen and them together bringing up Helen's illegitimate son. And I wondered, because at, at one point, you think that's what she's going to do. And then she finds a way of staying with Henry. And um, I wondered if audience would feel that that was uh, kind of disloyal to what they felt the character of Margaret would naturally do. And then, and so I was just kind of curious, I suppose. And then I think the response so far, I couldn't have been more wrong. (laughs) 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 Got that wrong. Um, I think what people have taken from it is that they, this world is a, a gentle world, world that lives in the gray areas of relationships which is that nothing is ever simple and um that the characteristic of margaret is to to turn towards people rather than turn away from them in moments of conflict um and i think that's what people have felt quite moved by that the in in some ways the simple thing would have been to run away from a man that seemed to have such different outlook on life and a different kind of value system than hers and run away into the sunset with her sister. And yet the reality would have been they would both have been committing some sort of social suicide, uh, given their status and given how little they had and they didn't have the rights that women enjoy and are hoping to enjoy more of today. Um, So that would have been actually a detrimental position for them to have taken. But also they don't settle for Mr. Wilcox as if it was the only option. They, they, she actively chooses uh, him. And I think it's quite a brave one um, and actually a more compassionate choice. Uh, and she finds a way of making it work for herself. And then, of course, independently of that, discovers that Howard's end was always meant to be hers anyway. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and she gets to the house. Um, and she gets to the house, yeah. <laughs> Did you see any difference or similarities between the way that British audiences reacted to that ending and Americans, American audiences reacted to the ending? I think I was quite um, surprised by how maybe American the American audiences are slightly more vocal um, than English audiences, maybe or more maybe um, kind of effusive or something. But there was definitely a very impassioned response to how accessible the story felt that the backdrop of the period drama was not something that was a barrier between feeling the being emotionally engaged with the piece. Um, and, And I wondered if that they would also just find the whole thing just beautiful to look at and nostalgic because it was an England that is a romantic idea of what it was like back then. But, um, There, I found, especially talking to journalists and engaging in interviews and, and talking to, um, audience members, friends and family of mine, uh, they loved how um, real it felt and how 
honest and true to not just the book but these characters felt very accessible um that we didn't make them feel kind of stiff period drama acting that that these were kind of fully formed human beings um and I think that was kind of lovely to get as feedback because that's what we absolutely set out to do. And I think what Kenny has written is a very active script that comes off the page and it's not too intellectual. It's not too pretentious. Um, it has a lightness of touch to it and a wit and a warmth uh, that people seem to have really enjoyed um, aside from the aesthetic. Yeah, we should mention just in case people sat through that spoiler of the ending and don't know <laughs> the particulars of this of this production. But uh, Kenneth Lonergan, who we lauded with Oscars for Manchester by the Sea quite recently, wrote wrote this adaptation in sort of a classic Kenneth Lonergan style, which is uh, just very naturalistic, very relaxed. And I think I think you're right that there was maybe generally there is a resistance among American audiences is to some kind of period pieces and period adaptations. And there was, I think, a palpable relief of like, oh, I understand this. This is a yeah. story of, of two sisters, a family. I get it. It makes yeah. sense to me. You know? Yes, abs- absolutely. I think it, the fear was just that people wouldn't tune in unless they weren't just naturally period fans of period drama anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think, like, you're absolutely right, Kenny... Kenny's language is so he's so relaxed but the funny thing is he's so specific um Hetty our director would say oh you know Kenny's written a comma there that does so that let's honor that comma by not making it sound like a statement let's follow on the thought after the comma and that's just a kind of a, a slightly exaggerated example of the level of specificity in his work that then sounds completely natural and realistic. Right, right, right. But what I I loved about it is that he, he kind of teaches you how to do it. I felt very much I can save hands that you just kind of get out of the way and you work you walk towards the character rather than try and reduce her into your own particular style of acting or your own personality. Um, that this was a uh, a fully thought out uh, character as they all were. And Kenny had done a very good job of making sure that they all had their backstory, but their own uh, personality and that they uh, reacted and responded in their own particular way to things that happened. He's a very clever man. We nicknamed him the Clever Bear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because he's so gentle in person and self-deprecating and modest. I I wanted to circle back to to what you were saying about... The way in which your character's choices were received by audiences. I, I was creeping around on your Instagram as I like to do before I talk to you because you're such you're such a good Instagrammer. And um, oh. <laughs> I saw um, you know a, a, a really glamorous photo of you in a sheet mask, yes. deeply glamorous. But uh, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Listening, looking at Ali Wong, my my fans. Yeah, looking at Ali yeah. Wong, and I, I had also just recently watched her special Hard Knock Wife that's on Netflix right now, and Ali is, uh, you know, watching that special, that Ali Wong special, made me really marinate in what a good time it is right now for 
expressions of womanhood that just really defy what we've been told is okay or right or feminist or womanly or whatever it is. You know, Ali Wong delivers this mm. stand-up routine. I think it's seven months pregnant, you know, just the sight of mm-hmm. a very pregnant stand-up comedian talking about the various things that she talks about, specifically the challenges of motherhood. I found that watching that just extremely liberating. And I was wondering mm. what you think about this time we're in right now. Yeah, um, I'm I'm so excited. I'm thrilled by it. When the Time's Up and the Me Too happened last year, it, it kind of was an explosion of uh, emotion and rage and grief and demand for change and an appropriate response to things that had happened and been allowed to happen for many years. But of course, the... I suppose the challenge from that is going, let's seize this opportunity to actually create specific change rather than have this generalized sense of anger. You know, let's channel that into something the way you're, where change actually occurs. And I wondered where it was going to be and how it would happen. And the fact it hasn't gone away, the fact that I think out of it is coming great voices, brave voices, whether that be in writing or in performance or, um, you know, even in journalism and reporting, uh, that it's still very much something that we're taking into our daily conversations and we're also acknowledging things that the different abuses of power not just terms of sexual harassment but in all ways in in kind of a, a culture of fear that has created an atmosphere by which women can't just get on with their jobs they have to overcome so much kind of by the sexual politics or um you know power games and feeling that that is also a full-time job as well as actually doing the job at hand i find it you know to be part of this now is is a real turning point in history potentially um and i i do feel kind of liberated and i feel with my social media account for example that's something that i struggled with to know what to do with um for a while thinking you know i respect so many actors who are not on it and and surely i should create this you know make sure that my work speaks for itself it's not just kind of my name and um i want to remain enigmatic and mysterious um you know but then but then i've actually found it as a platform for me to feel like i'm representing myself in this industry where before i felt at times that with press attention or desire that people has to put me at a certain angle or take certain things out of context to fit their own agenda i suddenly had this platform where it was I said what I thought and what I felt and what it meant without the fear of any sort of backlash. Um, and I was able to be funny and be silly and be goofy and show different sides of my creativity that I hadn't done before in other ways. And so even my experience on that on a smaller scale has made me feel like I can take better ownership of my name and my my face out there and that I can I can steer audiences who are interested in my work them into a direction of what I feel like I would like to contribute to society with the work that I do. Um, and also, you know, so I think, you know, that's kind of a, a sideline from the bigger question, which is the, that it does feel that times are changing and that, but it just has to be implemented with actual policy, with actual, you know, th- th- inclusion riders, uh, knowing also that, that we all have the power of our voice. Um, it's not that we we don't have a voice it's just we need more people to listen to it um and that seems to be the opportunity now to be very specific about what it is that we want to say and where it is we want to go next um and how we create those better working environments so that we can get on with it one of the things i'm most excited about is all the stories i keep hearing of various actresses more than ever before 
taking control as you as you talked about with your own I don't know social media taking control of their projects uh, wanting to become more producers uh, working on screenplays mm. all this sort of stuff is that something that interests you sort of generating work for yourself in the future yeah i think it feels like an inevitable uh, progression it it um for, for for me anyway uh, just in terms of where my own interests lie um and i d- i mean the idea is kind of scary because it it's seems to be relatively new and i when i came up came out of drama school i just wanted to work i just wanted to be able to to last long enough to have build up some sort of momentum that i could eventually string together a few jobs and call it a career <laughs> you know and that i could make a living from it um and it being something that i love that i hopefully in time i would get better at that was the goal and um that was you know the beginning of any career really you start off with navigating it as you go along with the skill set you have hoping that you will you will have more to offer as you go along and i feel that that if we get women get more interesting with age of course we do because we have experience and we have a stronger sense of who we are and where our limitations lie but also i think we we have the opportunity to to kind of forge our our paths the way we want it to be and i and and i would love that and i'd love the opportunity to either start a production company or work with producers um to develop either original material or adapt material and find those female led narratives that help debunk stereotypes for women um in whatever genre that may be um i think it's this is definitely the time to do it and to um to jump on that i'm so inspired by you know a lot of women who have ended up you know directing episodes of shows that they started off as as uh regulars on a series and now all of a sudden they're kind of executive producing them or they've they've directed a couple of episodes themselves or it's led them to start production companies or or women who have had fantastic success in one film then going I'm going to use this now to start a platform whereby I can start a production company based on my fame and my name and then uh help launch the careers of other filmmakers that haven't got their name out there yet that haven't been established yet and help build their careers i think it's uh it's it's quite exciting to think that there isn't um you don't have to just be a type of creative it's and i think it's also television's helped with that in that you know it, i think it used to be the case that there was this kind of snobbery around if you're in theater which i started in then you know, if you were lucky, lucky, you would graduate to TV. And if you were lucky, you would graduate to film. There was a snobbery around it. Um, and now you kind of see, you know, huge names going back to theater or, you know, people who are only known for film doing a limited series on a TV show. Um, you, or you'd have fantastic writers, uh, creating long form in, in, um, a series where they'd have longer time to develop an arc of a, of a character. Um, and then equally, you'd have people from theatre going into film and starting, you know, like Judy Dench's film career kind of took off later after she'd had this extraordinary um, career in, in on stage and screen in the UK. So you kind of feel like the world is open now to the possibility that you can you can visit each different medium. And uh, it's not about one being better than the other, just being different. I wanted to ask you about that because we are a an awards podcast focus podcast um there's something that's been sort of in the back of my mind especially this last year which is this i don't know there's this sense that there's a transition among the bafta film awards specifically um because of when they're positioned and when they when they air and everything that's going on with awards seasons these days it feels almost like they've become 
kind of lockstep with the Oscars in a way that they don't feel maybe as British. And I've heard this from, you know, British film lovers and British film critics as well as America. They, they don't feel as British as they once did. Whereas the the BAFTA TV awards uh, still feel so, yeah. so British. British. And I was wondering if, if, that's yeah. a, if that's a permutation that you had noticed and, and what you thought might be going on there. Oh, yeah, totally. They felt different worlds, really. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was there at the TV awards the other day and it was... Um, uh, yeah, it felt incredibly British uh, in a way that the BAFTA film hasn't hasn't kind of walked off in, in another direction where it seems to be more in, kind of globally inclusive or especially, you know, American um, with American content. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it, it's it's kind of an, a strange one, isn't it? It has a you know, talking about awards and essentially a world of which one has no control. And um, I talked to a very beloved actor once who said that people don't win prizes parts win prizes and um uh you can't really you know you it's it's not really <laughs> uh something that you have any control over um you know and you you know i i still i still when it comes to kind of uh awards i'm still feeling i still get angry that Olivia Colman didn't win a BAFTA for Tyrannosaur. Um, you know, I still, we all still have a very subjective opinion about these things, you know? And I think it just that in itself highlights the fact that it's so impossible to pit one creative story against the other, uh, you know, um, or, or kind of, it's such a, it's such a subjective ex- personal experience that to kind of make them compete with each other seems almost paradoxical. Um, I mean, having said that, it was very exciting to attend the BAFTAs. I have to say, I enjoyed it very much. Um, you know, but it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I still found it, I found it just a, a really joyful celebration of shows that had, for that year, brought so much entertainment and humour and joy and poignancy um, to, to, to the, the UK um, you know, so much of our culture and our community is is centered around the stories that we tell each other. Um, so I still pinch myself when I'm at events like that. And I spot someone who has, who I don't know, who has just for a moment, made me feel connected to them in some way and with a common, with common humanity. Um, and, and I find in those moments that you know the the I suppose the the fear of the pomp and pretension or the egocentricity or the vanity of any any kind of award ceremony that can almost seem at times kind of uh, neurotic and hysterical. All everything all fades away, and you're just in a room with people that you go, "Wow, that's they, I don't know you, and yet you made me feel something." Um, and how lucky I am to have have had that. You've been nominated for a number of awards and, and attended a number of these ceremonies. Is there a particular party, a particular ceremony that, that most suits what you want to get out of something like this? Is it the BAFTAs? Is it the Golden Globes? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think, it, 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 well, I don't know. I mean, I was kind of, yeah, I've been nominated for... Olivier Awards for theatre, which blew my mind. It was almost kind of like feeling that I was welcomed into a room that I'd always wanted to go into, you know, and I felt it it, when I was younger, it certainly made me feel like I had uh, earned, I suppose, a place to feel that I, 
I was of use in this industry. <laughs> Does that make sense that you kind of you to have a kind of some sort of impact in being able to tell a story that you cared about that has been able to have this miraculous ability to for someone else to feel something that I just find that kind of amazing really um I think you know also people kind of know me as a British actor because of my accent and because I'm from London but also I my father's American so I have dual nationality and I and being a being American is a big part of my life and also my love of american tv and my and my love of american films and growing up on them and the the actors i've admired a lot of them being american so to have uh recognition in the states uh is is as valuable and as important to me as as it would be you know any sort of award ceremony in the uk um you know i think it's because it's 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 very you know it's it's half of who i am i suppose um and uh yeah and and you know it, it i think it's i think it's just a very it's a very exciting time to have these stories some of them are more difficult some are not as digestible they're not as pretty uh but they are seeming to be now um a calling for a better representation of not only women but also men and how men are perceived in in stories um and what we're saying about men being allowed to be vulnerable um and not kind of uh you know that kind of toxic masculinity which limits you know limits men on screen being represented in a way that doesn't feel like it's entirely the entire picture you know i think the awards are kind of a, a celebration of where our culture is responding the most to um to the stories that, that people are putting out there. Speaking of award-worthy actors in vulnerable roles, the you got to present the BAFTA this year to Toby Jones for his great performance in The Detectress, yeah. which he's just, he's amazing in that show. That show is incredible and very, very British, and I was just so excited to see all of that happen. Yeah. But um, that gives me a more graceful excuse than, than normal to uh, pivot to your time in the Marvel Universe, because, of course, you got to uh, work not maybe with Toby on a film, but you both appeared in the first Avenger. Mm-hmm. I think we shared we, we shared lunch on set. Once. <laughs> okay. I think that was like the extent of our work together. But um, <laughs> I, I was, you know, without spoiling it for any for the you know five people on the planet who haven't seen the latest installment in the Marvel Behemoth, there is yet another reference back to the first Avenger in that film and. There is something about First Avenger, I think maybe even more than any of the other early Marvel films, that sort of keeps echoing through the franchise. And it's a film that I've heard everyone say when they revisited it, they just enjoyed it more and more each time. It's just growing sort of in its importance and love in Hmm. the franchise. And I was wondering, like, what Hmm. you think it is about that film and, you know, you getting you getting to play Agent Peggy Carter opposite Chris Evans, Steve Rogers in his first foray. Um, What Hmm. what has made that stick so well? Um, Oh, it's so hard to say. It's it really is hard to say in that once you've done a job, it's not yours anymore. And it's, it's up to the audience to do with it what they will and, and respond to it. Um, and it's for them, you know. Um, I think, you know, I can only speak kind of subjectively, personally about my experience of working with Marvel. And I f- 
think that they are very, um, you know, exceptionally smart at what they do. And they love what they do. You know, they're, uh, they're so enthusiastic about it. And they get just excited when they're developing a story, um, as an audience would be when they see it for the first time. They really want to delight their fans. I think what they did great, you know, brilliantly, especially in the first Avenger, is that, you know, they cast, they cast really brilliant actors. You know, Hugo Weaving and Toby Jones, for example, um, Two absolutely brilliant actors, you know, and, fa- and fantastic character actors, and uh, and I think that they've they've done that with not ju- so you've got obviously you've got the, the all the leads being brilliant superheroes, but then you have the supporting roles played by you know some incredibly talented people, and I think that's that really adds to I suppose the um, the impact of it, you know, and I, I felt grateful to them in that. Uh, you know, I, I auditioned like I would any other job. I approached it like I would any other job. And it's kind of the, the job that keeps on giving in that people have responded well to her. But my feeling about it was was that when I went in, I didn't feel like I was having to mold myself into a to a character that they wanted me to become. I, I was grateful that the, she didn't feel overly sexualized. Um, I, I liked the fact that she, the feeling was that she was... She loved early Steve before his transformation because there was a kindred spirit there. She saw she saw within him a man with a strong strong kind of sense of right and doing right in the world and yet was not taken seriously or wasn't given the opportunities because of his, you know, his physical height and his weight. And in turn she experienced that as a woman. That was her own limitation in the world that she was in. And so within that they shared that. So maybe it's maybe it's that really. Um and I did feel like later on they allowed me to make her what I wanted so I felt very grateful about that quite liberated quite free free to do that given the fact it's such a kind of amazingly controlled and produced franchise which is you know a, a different kind of beast right. and then the last thing I, I wanted to ask you about you know we were talking about I don't know, supporting female filmmakers with distinct point of views and you're doing this upcoming project with Gurinder Chada who did Bended like mm-hmm. Beckham and a bunch of other movies and uh, just just a really brilliant director this project Blinded by the Light and I was wondering if you could talk about that at all I think you're filming it right now is that correct? Yeah so um, on that point I hadn't worked with many female directors especially not long term either maybe one episode here or there uh, of something but um Working with Hetty McDonald on Howard's End was the longest time I'd worked with a female director. And then I went straight um, from that uh, work doing a play in in London written by Sarah Burgess, female writer, and directed by Anna Ledwidge, female director. Then I went into Blinded by the Light, directed by Gorinda, female. Um, I'm about to do something directed by um, Mahalia, um, Mahalia Bello, um, female again written also by a woman and then i'm doing measure for measure at the donmar warehouse directed by josie york so just completely coincidentally actually it hasn't like i've stepped aside and gone i'm only working with females but what has kind of happened is that they it's just been back-to-back projects with women which is great i don't know whether that means that more women are coming forward or i'm just following the work of more women kind of unconsciously but that's quite exciting um but anyway <laughs> back to the question so blinded by the light is um Gurinder has co-written it and it's about a british pakistani teenager growing up in a place called luton in the 80s um and disillusioned with the depressing society he's been um 
kind of born into uh, who have been uh, not doing well under Thatcher's reign. And he finds freedom through listening to the music of Bruce Springsteen. And he wants to become a writer like Bruce one day and discovers that he has lots more in common with Bruce than he was initially led to believe. And I play his teacher who is delightfully disillusioned with the education system um, and in her kind of a bar humbug way um, sees something fine in him that she encourages uh, him to pursue yeah so that's really that's really lovely and then later on this year as I said I'm doing Measure for Measure and interestingly we swap the roles halfway through so Jack Loudon and I will do a gender swap oh, halfway through the, through the production yeah and I'll play Angelo and he'll play Isabella but we'll you know I'll play Angelo as Angela for example um, but it just we, we want to see kind of what happens when it's a woman in the role of the the abuser uh, to an, a novice monk as opposed to the traditional way of Angelo over the novice nun. Um, so it's quite kind of creatively quite quite exciting, be quite provocative, I imagine. Yeah, I feel like Measure for Measure, at least for me, every time I've seen it, has been kind of a hard sit um, with, yeah, you know, with yeah. the modern lens. And um, and that's a really interesting take on it. Um, the, the last question I'll ask is when I was reading up a little bit on blended by the light which i'm very excited about it uh it was described as a hybrid hybrid musical uh yeah. do you get to do any any uh, singing or music in this in this film alas <gasps> i don't alas. alas not um i think i did a bit of singing in cinderella that's the only thing i've done on on screen uh, that required me to uh, extend the vowel sounds coming out of my mouth, but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah it's it's a really lovely you know that it's tonally very similar to her other work it has that that warmth um but but the unsentimentality of it just that kind of heartwarming feel-good factor uh that makes you have a giggle along the way um it's beautifully done and it's a young um new actors as the as the leads who are brilliant and i think i loved working with gorinda I, I she was she knew exactly what she wanted you felt you could trust her she would say if she didn't like what you're doing or try something else or you know, she's very straightforward very honest and um i love working with that i feel like i know where where I stand with someone if they're, they're giving me clear communication uh, and she's she's great for that excellent well thank you thank you again so much for taking this time I really appreciate it a oh, pleasure thank you very much for having me So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. Please find us on Apple Podcasts. Tell other people about the show. Help us find new listeners. We always appreciate it. You can find us at VanityFair.com where we are writing and talking a lot about the Emmys and Westworld and everything else we discussed. You can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. And Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth and this week's award for the best description of Little Gold Men's coverage of the MTV Movie and TV Awards goes to me, Katie Rich. They just fudged it and thought no one would notice. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? 
there's a new translation of the Iliad that's coming out. Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read the Iliad again. Whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 